Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Thanks for having me again. It's always a bit of fun, mate. Uh, reporting season is upon us. We are in the second week of ASX companies releasing their results. We've got a lot of more interesting companies to talk about this week. Last week, it was filled with small caps and US companies that were reporting quarterlies. Uh, we got some of the we got one of the we got the biggest bank. We got the telco uh, and a bunch of other interesting companies. Some boring companies, but some interesting companies. I received a few messages about the. Uh, Horizon results. That's the uh, Q, formerly known as QR National. Um, first time I've ever been asked to talk about Horizon in any f- form. Um, I don't know if you know it that well, but Maybe yeah, the ESG lens on it, or well, I guess the sustainability uh, cheaper by rail than by by road. Um, there's actually a really interesting sustainability report on the Horizon website for those of you that are interested in that. Um, and yeah, we've got one US company this week. So we've got Disney, which you're bringing to the table. Maybe this week we can try and keep it a bit more concise, mate, because I know you're on a holiday in Noosa. Um, if you do hear kids in the background, that's what's happening. But mate, um, yeah, why don't we just, just crack straight into it then? Uh, maybe we'll go with the, the biggest company on the ASX, I think, by market. Maybe BHP has taken this mantle now, but uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia out with its results. For those of you that are watching on YouTube, uh, we will do a bit of sh- screen sharing and what have you, and uh, just to kind of illustrate some of the, the results uh, in the flesh, but we'll make it so you can you can just listen along if that's uh, if that's your way to do it. But uh, basically, uh, Commonwealth Bank came out, reported uh, some pretty strong results at the surface, but when you dig a little bit deeper, you'll see that maybe there were some things that probably could have been better. Uh, the loan book increased um, across the board, but uh, it was home lending that uh, grew slower than system. So what does that mean? Basically, uh, the amount of money that CBA lends, if I just bring up a system, the amount of money that CBA lends uh, into homeowners and investors was actually down uh, in comparison to the uh, the rest of the, the business, which grew above its peer group. So business lending was up, business deposits were up, uh, household deposits were in line with the market, but home lending was slightly lower. Um, I don't know about this, mate. I feel like this isn't such a bad thing when a bank coming into a period of economic uncertainty really, you know, is happy to go at the pace of the market, maybe a bit slower. I don't know if you have any views on that. 
Yeah, I think there's a f when you look at the people who are trying to grow faster than system growth. I think we're talking about AMP later on. I think Macquarie's been one of them as well. So it's who are you, you're not losing market share to Westpac and the other big four competitors. You're losing it to either more nimble or more aggressive players. And you know, if you we haven't got any impairments yet, but it's there's a risk that impairments of loans go up because uh, interest rates are going up and and people struggle to make their repayments. Eventually, who knows how bad that'll be? Um, but you definitely don't want to be the most aggressive going into a period that that uh, impairments might be increasing. Yeah, you don't want to be the one that's lending a two-time system uh, a year before inflation really bites um, homeowners. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about falling property prices throughout parts of Australia. Um, you want to make sure that your bank isn't necessarily overly exposed going into that period uh, because typically when a new home is on the market is when it's most vulnerable to um, you know, getting squeezed for equity and, and whatever. Um, but we can see here, if we just look at CBA's results, um, you know, you know, I guess low single-digit growth is probably what you'd expect from a bank of this size. Uh, the one thing that reversed was the, uh, you mentioned loan impairments. Uh, because of COVID and a few other things, the loan impairment expense actually reversed. So if we take the, the two years ago results, so June 2020, and we're obviously in 2022 now, uh, we can see that in June 2020, there was a uh, $2.5 billion expense. This is when everyone was on like bank holidays and interest rate holidays and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then last year in 2021, there was a negative, uh, so there was a negative result, loan impairments, also a $554 million. But this year, it's flipped around to a positive. So that's a, a reversal of around $900 million. And if you compare that to how far CBO's uh, profit before tax went up, it went up by about $1.2 billion. So most of that actually come from a reversal in accounting rather than actual like strong operating performance from the business. You know, I think at the end of the day, mate, CBA shareholders will be happy with the result because final dividend dividend of $2.01 per share, um, that's the total. Bring the full year up to $3.85. It's a yield of around about 3.85%, fully franked, because the bank trades about $100 a share. Um, Not quite at um, pre-COVID level yet, is it? No, that's the one, mate. So, yeah, it, we, we, we can see, like, in, in times gone by, CBA was paying very aggressive dividends, and we measure the dividend of most companies based on the amount of profit that they earn as payout ratio. Um, the payout ratio, I think, the CBA targets is around 70 to 80% of cash profit. Um, so they're in that range. Um, and I think overall, you know, it's it's a bank, and we talk about this a lot. I think you, you've got a point around this, which is that, it's probably, it is the best bank in Australia, um, at least retail. Maybe only. the world. Maybe the world, you reckon? Yeah. And this is the thing, right? It's one of the, it's, what was it? Was it UBS that came out like a few years ago and said that CBA is the most expensive bank in the world or something like that? Do you remember that? I think it is. Uh, we were here um, as a measure of value of, of banks and it was something like 2.8, three times and every other bank in the world is like one to 1.2 times price to book. Yeah, right. Um, so hopefully it's still the case because you're about to prove me right or wrong. No, right no, no, no. Yeah, no. I'm just looking. I'm just looking at using the ticket term and I'm just looking at it. So price to book value uh, last 12 months, and you can see over time. Yeah, I mean it's always been pretty high over. Probably if you take the average of the past 10 to 15 years, it looks like it's what well, somewhere between two and two and a half times book value. So that's why bank, people always say it's expensive, even even though it's consistently traded at a premium to basically every other bank in Australia and the world. Yeah. Um, and it, if we just, I guess, take the domestic lens, it actually, um, it's got like, it's streets ahead in technology. Um, you know, it's always been pretty consistent with its dividends. 
it's got more more deposits. So deposits are typically seen as a safer source of funding for banks. So that's amazing when you see that the amount of so basically they're funding all their loans through people's deposits yeah. in the bank rather than going overseas and raise, you know raising more bonds or raising more capital. The cost of that's going up, but essentially the cost of deposit funding is controlled by them if you if if you're uh, dominating mm. the market as much as they do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, they're more than happy to put that chart of like us versus our peer group on that one. Um, the, the net interest margin was squeezed. They said it was a few different things in the mix, but one of the things was um, more fixed rate loans. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how they unwind over the next 12 to 24 months. Like fixed rates have been very aggressive. Like there's a big uh, disparity between fixed rate mortgages at the moment and um, variable because of the uncertainty. So it'd be interesting to see, I guess, how quickly those come back down, if they come back down. I think it'll reverse pretty quickly. You can already see mortgage rates are heading up incredibly quickly if you look at those, um, all the charts and market analysis, but and deposit rates are only ticking up very slowly. So that's where your margin mm. goes from 1.9 to 2.2 pretty quickly. And then two yeah. point, your net interest margin 2.2 is, that's where your profitability comes from. So it's... For sure. Um, particularly now with the banks relying more on just lending. Like people, it might sound curious, but for a long time, the banks have relied on other things like fees and uh, financial advice, insurance, et cetera, but they're kind of unwinding that now. So, um, yeah, overall, you know, a pretty like expected result from CBA. Maybe you, you, you probably felt it for the valuation, but um, I guess the unknown is what happens in the next 12 to 24 months with the impairment expense and how that impacts any dividends that get paid. But for now, it's um, steady as she goes. How about you, mate? What's number one for you? Oh, I have to stick with the the big caps too. So that's Telstra for me. Hopefully you can't hear the baby crying in the background. There oh, is someone right. else taking care of the child. <laughs> uh, Telstra, so it was yeah, increased dividend for the first time since 2015. I think that's all I have to say. And we can move on to the next one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. About. Uh, no, it was, I mean, Telstra is kind of an example of the other, uh, forward-looking example of the other companies we're looking at, which is you know, a massive monopoly that, realized it needed to change five, six, seven years ago, but it takes that long for these massive companies to actually make the changes they need. So they something like their consumer plans and small business plans for all their customers, they had 1,800 plans you could purchase. So it's, you know, 12-month, 24-month, casual. They've got that down to 20 in the last five years. So you can imagine how simple that, that becomes. You know, they did, did a lot of offshoring, cost-cutting, um, but that's probably it's evidence of someone like AMP and how much work has to go in to change the direction of a ship. And that's why Andy Penn, I think is tired after five years of doing it, uh, handing over to his CFO. And I mean, some of the comments there, we mentally transformed the company, simplified, simplified, digitized and set bold aspirations. And he's finally achieved most of that. Um, mm. And the result was, so they look at underlying EBIT rather than statutory. The statutory is obviously for Telstra, inc- includes all the money they're losing by the losing, uh, I think the copper network to the NBN. So their underlying EBIT was up 8%, which is far faster growing than, than what you'd expect for this type of you know infrastructure right. and, and mobile company. Um, Actual EBIT was up five percent, seven billion. Dividend was increased by six percent, which is which isn't bad given how long it's been. Yeah. yeah, particularly for this stock. And I think with what's going on, kind of the variability and volatility at the moment, there's more likelihood that there's a likelihood that more 
of returns will come from income over the next year or two, at least, uh, than capital gains, which have dominated for the last decade. Um, probably some of the more interesting things there were they had this energy business that they were trying to grow. They basically said, we're on hold with that. We're not going to take on customers in an energy market at the moment. And then they're, they're supposed to be rebuilding all the fibre throughout the cities. Um, and they basically said due to supply chain, labour, all those issues, that it's going to be earnings on that will be significantly lower. Um, but they called their mobiles business outstanding in uh, quotation marks, okay. which grew EBIT to $4 billion, so just dominates their business at the moment. Uh, and that was the decision that people questioned of just doubling down on 5G. Yep. Um, and obviously anyone who has a 5G enabled phone <laughs> knows <laughs> 5G is significantly better and people will pay for faster speed. Yeah, that's we saw that with iPhone take up, right? When they moved to 5G, the super cycle from Apple just you know, ripped uh, records. So uh, people willing to pay a very high price for it as well. I've I got to admit, I've got a 5G, 5G iPhone. I was part of that super cycle. But my, my, my SIM card's still an old one, so I don't know if the SIM card's not 5G. I was like, yeah, Mine only popped it. up the other day. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm not sure why. Yeah, it well, just started yeah. showing 5G. Sometimes you get 3G still. Yeah, I've found that people have had some sort of mixed results with it, so it's um, pretty interesting. Um, uh, so that's a, what do you make of uh, – just one final thing on Telstra. Like we talk a lot about the dividend. Do you think, though, like it has a place in portfolios considering that you know, it's been pretty anemic growth, if not going backwards and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think so. I think particularly with the structural separation they're trying to do now, which was first, and the government suggested it back in 2012 or thereabouts when they were starting the NBN, they were going to force them to do it. And they're finally doing it 10 years later. So that's selling off your infrastructure towers, selling off your your um, data centers, selling off all the non-core parts. And people talk about this almost conglomerate discount where you've got too many assets, no one knows how to value them. But when you start cutting them out, um, you're separating your core business, which is mobiles, internet, <clears throat> and other services, and you know, realizing the value of your infrastructure assets when you can. So I think it's reset its dividend, which was the hardest part, which hurt investors um, and setting itself up for a stronger period. But it just shows how patient you need to be in these sort yeah. of old school companies, still in yeah. the top 20. It's yeah, it's surprising because a lot of the other companies have kind of caught pace with it um, in various guises, like um, more innovative companies, companies that are continuing to grow. I think maybe one you know reason like some of the big banks have struggled. If you, it's probably kind of like CBA, Macquarie, and then there's the rest. And so um, you know maybe the banks you know haven't been performing too well. CBA still, uh, sorry, Telstra still a dividend favourite, so it finds a position in there. I just think. You know, if I can't see where the growth is coming from, I'd rather invest in something that is growing plus the dividend, as, as we've spoken about numerous times in the show. Yeah. Um, if, we, if we move to number number two, which is uh, Insurance Australia Group, commonly known uh, as IAG. Uh, it's an insurance company. Uh, it's got a few different brands underneath it, which they're trying to consolidate. Um, and the business overall, um, they said, uh, if you think about an insurance business, it's basically there's normally two parts to it. There's the uh, underwriting or the actual insurance and how they make money on that. And then there's the, uh, I guess, the other part of the business, which is where they can invest afloat and those types of things. If you follow Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, you'll know what I'm talking about. But um, they said that the insurance profitability came in below expectations at 14.4%. Um, that's an underlying basis versus 13.8%. Um, so that might, might, while that might seem positive, um, they had a huge 
uh, natural perils and claims uh, to report a bill for that. So I'll bring that up on the screen for those of you that are watching. We've got about 100,000 tabs open here. Um, it's like how you write off um, other banks impair loans just in case. Is that natural perils? Yeah. This was actual. So they budgeted for $700 million or so, and it came in above that. And that's because of all the flooding in New South Wales, Queensland, and basically climate change, to be honest. So they've going forward, they, they said that this was kind of like one of the most significant peril years we have uh, have experienced. And going forward, they're forecasting as opposed to about $700 million odd they're forecasting $909 million in their allowance. And they basically said, you know, it's a result of climate change. And this is what we're, we're having to do now. So um, there are a few different metrics you can look at a, a, an insurer. One is obviously the, the underwriting profit or loss. For many years, like QBE insurance has recorded like pretty bad underwriting experiences. But um, the other one is gross written premium. This is just like the the total amount of like written premium, the total amount of insurance that you're writing every year was up 5.7%. They have a plan to get to 9.5 million customers. This is IAG under its various brands. Globally? Um, or that's, um, that's multiple insurers, isn't it? Multiple, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that's here in Australia. Yeah, that's here in Australia. So um, the, the, the big thing is, I guess, the business is probably a higher quality insurer than, say, um, like QBE and those that are global. Um, the business paid a dividend. I don't think. I think the dividend. What was it? Um, dividend was total FY twenty two dividends were eleven cents per share, which is down forty five percent, seventy percent franked. But that represents about seventy eight percent of underlying net profit. Um, so it puts the stock on about a two point three percent dividend yield. Um, they're forecasting mid to high single digit uh, gross written premium and a margin that they want to say is pretty much consistent with this year. Um, so overall, you know, again, it's probably like a CBA result. It's like what was expected. Uh, the market hasn't reacted to the share price today. So for the most part, you know, analysts were expecting this. Um, it's been pretty like Telstra, like CBA. If you just look at the top line, so the business of sales or revenue, it's been pretty anemic for five years or so for IAG. So, you know, for the most it's part, tough business. Oh, I, I struggle with insurance. It's they say what up the stairs, down the elevator. Yeah, that's so you right. kind of see that with um, exactly there. QBE is even worse, where they ramp up their selling their policies because that's how you obviously how you make money, and it goes up, and then every five years or so it just falls off a cliff and goes up yeah. again and then falls and up and fall like. Yeah. <laughs> and part of that is they write so many policies and they need to raise capital in their statutory fund or in their investment fund, um, essentially to probably the challenge of that was generating returns mm. enough returns on that capital to, to fund the uh, claims they were getting. Uh, yeah. Um, and I just can't, I see that I'm not a trader, but I see it more of as a trading stock, you know, after it yeah. falls, they have great yep. periods of recovery and then it falls again. Uh, I can't. And as you said, climate change, uh, the kind of uncertainty around claims, just um, it's hard to predict and, and hard to warrant. An investment, I think. Yeah, like I, I agree. We're singing from the same songbook today because this, I mean, they're, you know, they have actuaries and, you know, people that data mine this stuff every day. They've got all the data sources. And even they're saying, like, the investment experience wasn't as expected. So, you know, I sorry, the, the underwriting experience wasn't as expected. So, 
you know, how can we do that as individual analysts or investors? Um, if you want a really good, if you want a masterclass in kind of how insurance can be done, you'd obviously look at Berkshire's Geico, but you could also look at a company called Markel Corp in the United States. Um, it's, it's, it's run, it's a kind of like a family business. I'll just bring it up on the screen. Um, and it's a business that has a tremendous uh, chief investment officer as well. So you can see that there. Once again, going up the, you know, the escalator down the elevator, but it's, uh, for the most part, it's it's really proven its where in both underwriting and investment. And the whole thing is, Drew, that people think uh, with banks as well as insurers that because they have this huge float, as interest rates go up, um, so does their interest that they earn for nothing. But at the same time, if they've got a horrible underwriting business, um, you know, if, if they've got Should a horrible... Price that risk well, yeah, yeah. And then if yeah. you're, you might be losing money on the bonds you're holding already too. They're like, we don't always consider that. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, they, the Berkshire Hathaway with Warren Buffett did take a stake in the company quite a few years ago. And if you go back and read the original announcements, um, which is a good point, um, actually, you'll see that they got Berkshire got a pretty sweet deal on it. So it wasn't like... You know, d dividends are great for, for Berkshire, but um, it was a pretty good deal at the time. It was kind of, I think maybe Warren Buffett even did a video when the announcement, the investment was announced. So I could be mistaken, but I feel like I remember that. Um, so even though like it might have ties to Berkshire, maybe it's not kind of um, the quality, the same quality. So that's uh, IAG. I kind of prefer Challenger, the um, annuity provider, which is more like an insurance company too. So. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's got that same sort of like uh, prescribed capital adequacy buffers and everything around its, its annuities. Um, but it's also got the funds management business, which is really interesting too. So, mate, what's your number two? Uh, I'm sticking with fund managers. Ooh, having a yeah, yeah, having it. They've had a shocking run. Uh, pretty much all of them been sold off by 40, 50, 60%. Naturally, a lot of them are in outflows, you know, years of underperformance and they're losing money. But so GQG uh, is a, it's one of the funds that we invest into in. You can hear the background here. Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> uh, it was, it was one, a fund we found by accident almost before Christmas one year. We usually don't take meetings in the lead up to office closure. Yep. Uh, and they basically they had 60 or 70 billion under management and we'd never heard of them. Um, Australian Super was one of their biggest uh, institutional customers. Um, and it's probably the most amazing thing is it's got, uh, they just had 6.3 billion in inflows in the first half of 2022. They basically just wow. do global equities and emerging market equities. Um, Rajiv Jain's uh, CIO um, had you know great background as all you know good fund managers do at multiple different places, yeah. uh, and it's I mean their revenue was up twenty one percent two hundred twenty two million. They list they only listed last year and the stock's already down twenty five percent mainly I think just on market concerns and margins. Um, but revenue is up 21, profits 83 million. So it tells you it's very simple. You more money, more fees you get, and the more profit you make. And you know, marketing and um, employment costs are the only, uh, essentially, the only cost they have. Um, and listing costs. It was kind of strange why they listed in Australia, but there's a Pacific Current Group um, were one of the early, or still one of the distributors or one of the early owners of the of shareholders in the group. So that's the Aussie connection. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, I mean, the amazing thing is they've got 6.3 in inflows, but they're also outperforming. So their global equity fund delivered a 
positive return, um, managed to get it out of tech and into energy and materials, true active management and outperforming benchmarks. So kind of like Magellan was five years ago, probably. Yep. Um, That's probably what still, compared to too, right? Yeah, and I think one of the most surprising things is that the fees on the, the funds are something like 0.7% MER, whereas the majority of the major global equity groups are above 1% still. Yeah. So you can say the industry is going to suffer from lower you know, fee cost, fee pressure, but they're already there and they're, they've just hit 90 billion under management in six years of operation. Um, do you say Rajiv, he's the uh, CIO? Chief investment officer. Just according to ticker here, it says he owns nearly sixty nine percent of the company. Yeah, that's worth that's worth a cool two point three billion dollars. He became a billionaire in six years, I think. Jeez, <laughs> oh, wow! He'll be wanting to pay dividends. Um, and if he's an Aussie, maybe is he Aussie or not? No, uh, no, no, Indian, yeah. I think. From uh, yeah, yeah, he should get his Australian citizenship and then become a tax resident, collect the franking credits. <laughs> Jeez, wow. That's impressive. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, like, I think... I don't know what the price for it is. Yeah, right. It's, um, I guess, at the end of the day, for a business like this, um, as long as they're still putting in good performance, they've already got that inertia, right, of, you know, you're using them as a financial advisor or you're meeting with them, then that means the person down the road is going to meet with them and it has that network effect. Until one day it unwinds, of course, and they get become asset gatherers and... You know, it's harder to that's, outperform. That's the challenge. And one of the comments they made in their uh, annual update was that they're actually being allocations to their strategies being cut because they're the best performer. This is kind of the challenge of advice and, and investment management is that you tend to sell your winners or reduce your winners because they're getting overweight yeah. and keep your losers, even though you probably should be doing the opposite. So um, they said they were confident they, they you know, look through that. Um, and that's just part of, you know, being successful is you're the first one to be cut. Yeah, <laughs> you need yeah to you're capital. too big. You're too big yeah. in the portfolio. So yeah, makes sense. Um, so that's that's a really interesting company to play along with. Um, hopefully they come to Melbourne. We can get an interview with them. That'd be nice. Um, so uh, the third company on my list is one that was a request, which is Horizon Holdings, formerly QR National, trades under the ticker symbol AZJ. Basically, they ship bulk, which is like agricultural products, industrial products mining, anything mining related. Um, and then they have the coal side of their business, which is a big freight business in um, Queensland. And so the, one of the things that's probably the most uh, probably the most interesting development for Horizon in recent times is they got approval to you know, buy another railway effectively. And as part of that deal, they have to divest some for competitive reasons because Horizon is a pretty dominant business along the northeastern seaboard of Australia. And it's basically bought the the rail that connects South Australia straight up to Darwin. And Darwin's important because Darwin's the closest seaport to Asia. So if you're shipping coal, you're shipping anything, um, it's cheaper to do it by rail to port uh, than it is by road. So um, Horizon reported in terms of total tons shipped on its network, um, 244 million tons, which was down from 253 million tons. So slightly down as a result uh, of that and some other things, revenue was down 2%, net profit was down 2%, free cash flow, according to their calculation, was $663 million, up 13%, EBITDA down 6%. Uh, in terms of how the business generated um, a, a resilient result, you could say, even though it's down 6%, was uh, coal, coal, which is a massive unit for them, was up 1%, um, whereas the others were negative. Um, interestingly, if you look at the business 
there was a 33% increase in energy and fuel costs. So obviously it's not cheap to run trains, even though they may be cheaper than road transport. Um, at the end of the day, uh, they still got to wear that cost of higher energy prices. So uh, just like the rest of us. Our final dividend of 10.9 cents, 100% franked, and that's 75% of underlying profit. And the final thing I'll give you is the outlook for Horizon, which was that it was guiding, it's guiding for slightly higher EBITDA in the year ahead. So just kind of like basically saying at or around the current rate of EBITDA, maybe a little bit more. They reckon there's going to be higher coal volumes, but uh, maybe there's a bit of a squeeze on revenue. So I don't know how's, how we... Sorry, how's it share traded? Uh, let's let's quickly bring that up. So uh, at the end of the day, um, you, know, you can see it's flat today, but at the end of the day, businesses like Horizon, uh, for those people that are new to this type of investment, they sound fantastic because uh, you're like, well, it, you know, it's a railway, it's not going anywhere. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett's bought railways before, and so on and so forth. But he's if, bought everything at some point. Bought, so. uh, yeah, yeah. Except, except gold. We don't talk about gold. No, he bought some gold miners last year. He got bought, bought, bought gold miners, but not gold itself. So that's yeah. the key distinction. Um, but if you go back in time, right? And if I'm just bringing up here on the screen the revenue, the annual revenue growth of Verizon, you can see it peaked at like 11 percent back in 2011, and it fell to this range of kind of where you could average it out at zero over the past six years. And the reason that this happens is that on one side of the ledger, you've got governments that impose regulatory you know, caps and uh, price increases and so forth. And um, on the other side, you do have a bit of competition from alternatives. It's not, you know, that common, but, you know, you could ship, you could go by road and, you know, use trucks and so on and so forth. But, um, and you also have customers that sign contracts, renew co contracts and different volumes in the mix. So, for example, flooding and different types of things can affect volumes that miners want to push through the network. But at the end of the day, um, you end up with a business that compounds pretty slowly, but it's reasonably consistent through the cycle. So you might get single-digit growth. You're never um, going to have a big on that. That's why it trades on a PE of 14. It's probably been in a band of 12 to 16. Well, that's it, yeah. And so you're going to get that experience where it's kind of like you're not going to get the hype cycle around a, a rail operator, are you? And you're not going to get the kind of the deep despair because it's still going to keep ticking over. And um, at the end of the day, this is where if you are looking at this business, like I know some listeners are, you've just got to understand your valuation. Understand if I was modeling this business today, I haven't done anything on it. But if I was, I would be looking at, well, what is like the expected revenue increase over time? And by that, I mean like looking at things like the contracts that they're signing, um, the, the kind of the, the government uh, oversight here on like caps or minimums or prices and whatever and how that reflects volumes across the network. And then you've got to basically factor in inflation on those costs, on the cost base. And, you know, I don't think you're going to be, like, you're not going to be telling your friends about Horizon if you invest in it. You're probably just going to collect your dividend check and it's going to compound slowly okay. over time. And that's that's basically the business. I mean, if you have a view on this, I know a lot of people do, uh, be sure to reach out to us on Twitter or send us a message, an email. Uh, mate, that's Horizon. In at number three, I've got a two more uh, kind of a bit more exciting companies in the back end of my list. So what's on your number three? Uh, I'll go the slightly more exciting. So News Corp, which would probably be pretty divisive as well. You'd oh, yeah. <laughs> Similar to Horizon, you don't want to tell anyone if you own News Corp or <laughs> particularly not on Twitter. Um, I don't hold it yet. Oh, it's one I've looked at multiple times. They had an incredible run in uh, 2020, 2021 as well. Um, mm. And I mean, they are in part of 
REA, so REA Group, and I think you mentioned if you've got another one of those stocks in yours. Um, yeah. But the biggest biggest part is Dow Jones. So if you you, I think it's Barron's, Market Watch, a lot of the big US uh, financial news um, and Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal, and that so the whole group had the 11% um, increase in revenue, 10 billion uh, profit doubled for the year as well. So I think News Corp sold a lot of their production media assets to Disney, which I'm also going to talk about a few years ago. And now they're very much news property uh, and um, I think they own part of Foxtel too, the majority of Foxtel still. So super interesting. Thirty-one. They, they've just kind of pivoted, got rid of all their um, old-fashioned assets almost, and pivoted towards digital subscriptions and just quality, consistent news. Maybe, maybe quality and news corp. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably you listening to. Um, <laughs> in some people's opinion, uh, I mean the the ma- massive highlights always been REA Group. They own so much of it. Uh, REA Group. Revenues were up 37% in the last year. So the question on valuation and why I've always struggled is valuation ran incredibly strongly. But if you're at a peak in the property cycle, what does that mean for REA? Um, I'm also on the other side. I've called a property bust forever and realized that it's not arbitrary. It's not boom or bust. You can just have slight shifts and that's mm-hmm. more likely going to be, it's been the case every other time. So it makes sense to be now, even though it doesn't make for good headline in either direction. Um, I just, I use so many of their, uh, I, they're just such a good flow of content. And then there's some big pieces on Foxtel in the last few days, which almost IPO'd, um, but also managed, like a Telstra managed to shut down, the, effectively lose, losing all their customers from traditional, you know, uh, wide in Foxtel boxes and growing strongly in cannibalize themselves, mm-hmm. like Disney Plus um, with KO and Binge. Um, so it's quite an interesting for an old-fashioned media company it's quite an interesting digital media company today yeah it'd have to be straight out of that kind of the the value box though right if you as in you'd want to be looking at this business through the lens of well how does it mix that revenue over time and how does that you know grow margins and i'm just looking at gross profit margins have actually increased from 44 percent in 2019 to 51 percent uh, in 2022 so the gross margins are on the business are better uh, and it's kind of that's the kind of emerging value play you look for if you're into that type of thing. Um, why don't we just now shift gears and I'll just jump straight across to um, to REA Group or realestate.com.au as we know it here in Australia. It's not just realestate.com.au. If you go to Real Commercial, if you go to a bunch of others, like if you use one form for renting, if you go to REA India, uh, PropTrack, a bunch of different brands, you can basically tie all of the Australian property market data analytics to a couple of companies and the big one is REA Group. Uh, another one would be Domain. And so at the end of the day, what you, you mentioned there like boom and bust. Um, for me, there are two things that make REA Group special and one of those is um, the listings, the number of listings and the second one is how fast they increase the price of those listings and they disclose that up front. Um, there's been a few boycotts over the years of, of REA Group, you know, Real estate agents have said, we're not paying that. We're going to domain. And then domain tries to do the same thing. But you can see here, like they always pump up how good they are, how big they are, how much better they are. And on the screen in front of us here, I'm just looking at the similarweb.com results for REA versus domain, the core websites. And you can see here in the most recent month, this is July 2022, 56 million website visitors to REA group and 21.6 million 
to domain. So 21.6 versus 56. Uh, and um, you can see the time on site, REA wins, pages per visit, REA wins, bounce rate, REA wins. And so it is a, still a dominant platform. And this leads me to the other point, which is that whereas it's probably a little bit, I probably take this in a little bit of a different way because over the, the year, they reported 25% revenue growth from their core operations. Listings were up 11% but there's still bugger all in the way of rental listings. So renting is a big problem in Australia. There's not many rentals. Um, but the price increases were 8%. So they're increasing average prices by 8% while also increasing listings 11%. Um, and Inflation-driven supply chain issues. Oh, so. yeah, commodity prices. <laughs> so, uh, that, yeah, it was, it was clear that, uh, yeah, coal prices were going up and so therefore our digital ads have to go up as well. Um, but no... <laughs> <laughs> like they just roll out something new every year and say that's the reason. Uh, but, you know, this is one of those industries where uh, some real estate agents really, they just pass that cost on to their, the vendor, the seller of the home. So at the end of the day, it's all of us that own homes and want to sell the cop it. Um, and we keep doing it because they have the big audience. So, you know, it, this is a business, I think, that even in a property market downturn, they're going to get more listings. They might not be able to charge the same for the, um, you know, for the increase prices throughout a, a downturn. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but um, they'll still get listings growth uh, in a downturn as well. So, How's it trading at the moment, valuation? Valuation-wise, I can just quickly bring it up on the screen, just one second. Um, I mean, REA Group, if if the business is ever cheap, if you could say that, then you probably would buy it, right? But um, let's bring it up on the screen in front of us. Um, well, not Telstra. We don't want to be talking about Telstra. Oh, not, I hate charts. That looks like an ugly chart, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, um, let's have a look. Da, 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 still loading. It started to bounce. Let's look at revenues. And we can see revenues over the last few years absolutely like just dominating. And that's reflective of the, the kind of, not monopoly, not the monopoly, but the monopolistic type um, business that it is. And if we go to the chart. So it was $116 before the pandemic hit when we... It probably didn't have a stronger property market then, and it's only ten percent higher. Yeah, but it probably it's just grown profit by twenty five percent, which is yeah. kind of yeah. So it's pretty impressive. But it, the thing is, um, it peaked at one hundred and sixty seven dollars, you know, six to twelve months ago, and now yeah. it's back down to one hundred and thirty two dollars a share. So um, there has been a bit of a reversal. But I mean, this is like like CBA. If it's no secret that REA is the the biggest dog in town, and so. Um, at the end of the day, you've got to pay the price, you know, for that kind of general awareness that it is a, a, a monopolistic-like business. And um, I think the acquisition of Mortgage Choice is a really interesting one, as well as some of the international growth throughout Asia and India. India grew really quickly. Um, the integration of Mortgage Choice is now increasing costs a little bit. But, you know, this is another play from REA Group, which is the ability to potentially move deeper into the value chain. So, you know, not just show you properties to buy and not just give you a quote on a mortgage repayment from CBA or from NAB, but actually, you know, help you find a mortgage. Um, that's really powerful. And that, you know, is another revenue stream. As, you know, this it's no secret, like in the digital realm that we live in, if you have an audience, it's easier for you to have optionality. So if you have a business that is big and successful, Wherever it turns its gaze from that point on is typically something that it can succeed at. Like we look at Apple as the, the prime example, 700 million subscribers or whatever. Um, 
if that was its own business, it would be an enormous, you know, Fortune 500 company. So um, good result. I saw yeah, a presentation recently, I think it was Wavestone, that talked about the sweet spot of oligopolies. And it's like 65% is where you can, of the market is where you extract the most margin. And that's, mm. you showed the search data and that was almost 65, 66%. Mm. And uh, like there aren't that many oligopolies in the world, yeah. <clears throat> but they're not like in the US, there's about five or 10 companies all fighting for the same market because it's still yeah. early there. Whereas this one is just dominating it. So, Yeah. And it's got the optionality of those um, Asian markets as well. So really interesting business. Well, I've only got one more to go, but you've got two more, mate. What's on your list? Uh, this one taught me a good lesson historically, <laughs> personally, and as an advisor uh, in the importance of stop losses um, <laughs> in some cases. Uh, AMP, so, and it's also it's probably a similar story to Telstra. It's the question is how mm. patient you're willing to be to wait for something to recover. Um, so AMP, wealth management, asset management, financial advice, AMP North platforms, uh, they had insurance, they sold their insurance business. Um, I mean, they were the, among the worst hit during the Royal Commission because they're essentially one of the biggest uh, employers of advisors um, and all the issues that were rife in all the major, you know, the, every bank and every um, major financial advice group had the same problems as we saw, which was fees for mm -hmm. no service and charging dead people. Um, and they were among the biggest hit by that. So they just had a 24% fall revenue fell 20%. It's still that period like Telstra where you're cutting everything, selling all the non-core stuff and trying to clean up your business. They did things like cutting the fees on all their platforms to make them more competitive with the market, <clears throat> re reducing the number of advisors they were licensing. Um, so a lot of their businesses are like resetting the base for earnings. Um, probably a Foxtel would be similar as well where you, you have to lose customers to mm. reestablish yourself. Um, they an interesting one was they targeted two time system growth for lending, but they they indicated they only got one point one five times, and that that was a deliberate decision. Um, which I'm not what? sure how you, you target it, then deliberately don't achieve it. Uh, but that was one of the comments they made in the in the update. And the new CEO has only been in for a year, um, and she comes highly uh, credentialed. Uh, was it go ahead. Was it AMP that wanted to return a heap of capital to investors last year? I thought we, we talked about this on one of the shows and they were saying that they were going to return some capital or maybe I got that wrong. I couldn't find it in the data. Yeah, they are. They just announced they're going to return of 1.1 billion, but they haven't still haven't paid a dividend. It's been a, quite a few years. They, yeah, it's been a few someone years. Someone were putting comments about long suffering and other words for, for shareholders, but they're going to return 1.1 billion, 350 in a buyback, and then they're seeking approval for a special dividend and a capital return. Um, and that's from the sale of what they called it Columate Capital and one of their infrastructure platforms. So, do know, sorry, Drew, do, do you know what that? I'm just asking you off the top of your head. Do you know what that is per share? There isn't not yet. Yeah, yeah. The reason that I ask is like if you look at the share price chart of AMP since 2000 and what, like 2007, uh, 2005. Don't, don't look at it. Don't look it's at just it. like it's so it's compounded. <laughs> it's compounded at negative 10% per year. Uh, it's compound annual growth rate in reverse if there is such a thing. Um, but if you look at it another way. It's also the cheapest or around about the cheapest it's ever been on a price to book ratio. So uh, genuine like pushing into the cigar butt territory. Um, I'm wondering if there's a bucket load of franking credits and 
capital, like you said, that can be returned. Um, I mean, what's the market cap considering the um, oh, geez. capital that, returns? Is it a small cap? Um, 3.6 billion. So you're getting what 30 of your money back um, as a shareholder now, uh, yeah. you know, assuming you didn't hold it for the last few years as well. Um, but it's just, I, I think the, they're saying the right things in you know being in the industry and embracing technology, getting costs lower, trying to service the you know masses of people that need advice. Uh, but it's just incredibly messy. So the profit in wealth in advice fell twenty percent. Hmm. Um, uh, the cutting fees. Oh, oh no, sorry, lost advice lost thirty million, and their advisors are now down to a thousand from four thousand before the royal commission. Um, Wow. So yeah, like I was talking about this uh, this morning that I don't I don't know the exact figures, but the, the estimates what were like there was twenty six thousand financial advisors in Australia, maybe down to like fifteen. Fifteen. Some yep. estimates say it could even go lower to like thirteen. Yeah. Um, it's a really challenging industry right now, isn't it? It's not like the industry for a company like AMP that has that checkered history too, right? Like it's it's tough. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, a lot of the uh, advisors wouldn't even, you know, they're just advisors. They just happen to work for AMP and they probably yeah. fell into AMP. So um, I think it's the, a lot of the steps are positive and probably positive for the industry, but it's just messy and it's going to take some time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I've had a lot of people, like maybe when they finally get this capital return over the line, maybe this is a catalyst for, a pretty substantial re-rating for a lot of investors. Maybe that's what everyone's hanging out for because, um, yeah, I mean, there hasn't been a lot going for it recently. So um, you're getting something for free when you buy it. Um, people have said it different ways. <laughs> like it was, you're getting the advice business for free, you're getting the wealth management business for free, you're getting something for free. Um, yeah. Even they got their own bank and the net interest margin, that's only 1.3% compared to CBA at 1.9. So you can see how difficult it is to extract profit. Some of the... Um, like over the years, some of those um, AMP capital funds have been pretty good. Like they've yep. been, yeah, under the banner there, they've been pretty helpful. So a lot of people were trying to value it off those types of things. Um, which makes Melbourne sense. Airport is one of their biggest, uh, they've had a long holding in oh, Melbourne right. Airport, one of their big funds, I think. Um, yeah, right. Okay. And invest a lot of money for institutional investors. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I mean, there are reasons for you to, uh, I guess, try and salvage parts of it. Um, if you're that way inclined as an investor, that's probably not the way I invest. But, um, yeah, really interesting. So my final company, uh, fifth and final company, is, I guess, a, a, a household favorite. It's RE, uh, it's during ARIA. It's uh, RMD, that's the ticker symbol, ResMed Inc. It's dual listed on the ASX and U.S. markets. Came out with its fourth quarter results. Revenue up 4% to $914 million up 8% in constant currency. They reckon they added 60 to $70 million from directly from a competitor's recall. So what does ResMed, ResMed do? ResMed creates like sleep apnea systems that you'd have beside your bed. You wear the mask, you got the ventilator. Um, and they've just released something called AirSense 11. And AirSense 11, I was checking it out just before, was it's a, it's a product that's basically fully cloud integrated. So you put on the mask, you got the, you know, you got the ventilator or the respirator and you've, you've, you've got this machine that sits there and it's constantly sending data back and forth to the cloud um, and it's monitoring you, it's making recommendations or suggestions. And so this is a whole push by ResMed to go from just hardware, continue to push into like software and cloud computing. Um, really interesting business. Um, the, the, the product recall on one of the competitors' products actually was that when they put the masks on, 
over time they would degrade and there were, there were people, the customers were, were reporting like little black particles, um, you know, in their masks and everywhere. And um, the fear, the great fear is that, um, you know, people have ingested some of those particles over time without even realizing. So the implications of that are, are could be something meaningful. So um, ResMed, really strong company, gross margin up 57%. Over the full year, if we take full year results rather than quarterlies, revenue up 12%, gross margin slightly uh, retracted with um, cost of goods sold, but our operating income up 11%. And overall, you know, again, this business is a serial compounder. Uh, you know, it's got Philips, it's got a few other industry, uh, competitors in there, but this industry as a whole is growing. As people put on weight, as people become more conscious of their, you know, their sleep, uh, sleep apnea is a thing that's like a natural tailwind, kind of like cochlear um, with all of the addressable market that it has. Um, ResMed is definitely surfing that global healthcare wave. So really strong business, strong result. Yeah, I spoke to an analyst that was saying that it could take four to five years for the competitor to catch back up. Yeah. Um, like the challenge of having an issue with your respirators is that your sales team is now dealing with replacing them and and dealing with existing customers, not dealing with selling new product. Um, yeah. And that takes a long time to catch back up and then get ahead of. So it could be a sustained period of market share gains um, before the major competitors come back. Mm. Overall, you know, ResMed's going to keep lapping that up. And it could even take longer than five years. They might never recoup that, that lost ground. So um, strong business. Well done to anyone that's kept holding it for many years because it is a multi-bagger and a half. Um, it's one of those, we could say, Australian but global success stories that Australian investors just happen to have exposure uh, through the CDI structure. So um, really good business, well run, you know, industry leading. So good, good company. Put it on your watch list. In at number five for you, mate, what do we got? It's one of my favourites. It's been a rough couple of years as a shareholder, but uh, Walt Disney Corporation, um, pretty well diversified. So Parks, obviously Parks had an incredibly difficult few years with COVID, but they're finally, you can see that, don't show me the share price. I don't need to <laughs> see that again. It's been a bit up and down, we'll say that. Uh, I mean, the Parks revenue just almost doubled in the last quarter, um, smashed expectations. But they also own ESPN. They launched Disney+. Plus. Uh, they obviously have the Marvel Studios and production assets. Um, everyone loves Thor. It's probably the, you know, they made a call several years ago buying up all the major brands, including Star Wars, and realizing that content was key and being able to sell product around that content and TV shows and just become massive content producers, probably before Netflix did. Uh, and they've actually just grown, when you include all of their subscriptions, to bigger than Netflix. So they're now at 217 million, including Disney Plus and the ESPN description, uh, subscription services, whether you, whether that counts or not. Um, I'd include it. I'd <laughs> include it. not be a fair. Yeah. But it's... Um, it's I don't a, think we get ESPN in Australia, though, can we? No. We can go to the website and whatever, and you can see snippets on social media. But, yeah. Yeah, incredible business, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's starting to grow again and you're kind of getting a reset in the share price for that growth. And they've also, so rather than they've had the pain, kind of, uh, I read the Bob Iger's um, biography who came up with the idea for Sydney Plus, uh, Disney Plus, mm. um, the idea that you had to cannibalize your entire business to reset it. Uh, it was a success story until they're launching their own ad-supported here, um, kind of just jumping on the bandwagon of Netflix and getting a step ahead rather than waiting until they have to, um, which was quite interesting. If, if it, I know this is just a heuristic, so please don't like 
you know, at me on Twitter or whatever. But um, <laughs> as that, soon as you say that, that's what happens. Yeah, yeah then that's what people do. Um, so the like, if we just look at simple price to sales ratio, like trailing price to sales ratio, it's actually at the well, other than right in the depth of the um, COVID crash, like right in the depth of it. Um, it's actually at the lowest, it's trading at the lowest multiple of sales since 2013, 2014. Um, and this is a business that is now a better business. It is experiencing a massive influx of people at parks while also having a super impressive subscription business, you know, annuity, high inc- a high margin business. So, you know, even though it's a behemoth, maybe it's time to take another look. Definitely. And pretty much every business division is growing, uh, growing revenue and profitable. So um, it's probably the, the most interesting part. And if you've ever been to Disneyland, all the, oh, yeah. all the, all the hotels, parks, everything else that goes around it uh, is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible experience. I think like in a world where content creation is key, uh, co- like content ownership and brand ownership is becoming more and more important. Um, I think, you know, the writing's been on the wall for a little while that Disney was going to be able to move further down the ecosystem and go into those over-the-top type streaming services and what have you. And now that they've effectively they've crossed that bridge and done it and snatching share away from everyone else, it's pretty impressive because they basically control everything from comic book through to what you watch on the big telly. So um, the thing that, you know, people really like bought up the share price. It wouldn't be too hard if you're thinking like the share price is down, mate, because this is a, a company that came out with blockbuster after blockbuster after blockbuster after blockbuster. And these happens with the, this happens with these IP rich companies. Like uh, we see it with gambling and pokey machine play like they come out with like one thing and it still does really well. Or like in this case, it was like Marvel, you know, um, constantly coming out with like big hits that broke, broke box office records. Um, but they still got all that franchise. It's still alive. So Really impressive business. I like it. Definitely. They don't have the challenge uh, as much as Netflix where they're trying to create new content because they've already got ideas um, and a massive backlog of, of stuff to push yeah. out. So, Yeah, totally. It's just like they might stuff some things up, of course. Like there was some pretty critical reviews of uh, Obi-Wan, uh, the seri- <laughs> that series. Um, and some people have said, you know, the, the new Marvel movies aren't what they – used to be but i think even for nostalgic reasons people are going to keep their disney plus subscription everyone loves uh, chris hemsworth it's kind oh, of you gotta love chris hemsworth <laughs> yeah um and you know good directors good staff on that one so um i think overall really interesting business for global companies we actually did a deep dive on disney about 18 months ago on our australian finance podcast and it was super popular everyone loves it because everyone can relate to it they've got a memory with this attached to this company so um yeah i like it one for the watch list mate do you own any of these shares by the way i should mention i don't own any of them uh disney disney yeah right and news news and gqg have always sitting there on my watch list but i've never pulled the trigger yeah I've, i'm kicking myself because i sold resmed shares years ago and um dare i Too just exciting. do a quick yeah, too, it was probably it was like a yeah, better ideas, and uh, that was probably around 2014, 2015 when it was five bucks a share. It's now thirty three dollars a share. So, I mean, if you find an industry leader, stick with it. I think is one don't of sell your winners. Ones. Yeah, as long as they keep dominating whatever industry they're in. I mean, no one probably could have predicted this recall; otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. Um, but at the same time, like you know, Resmed's in that sweet spot of growth in a massive TAM. So. Um, yeah, lots of interesting companies in today's list. If you do like uh, to hear us talk about companies and just give you a brief overview of the results, 
please just send us an email, podcast at ras.com.au. You'll find a link in the show notes to uh, Drew's website, Wattle Partners, if you want uh, or need financial advice. Be sure to get in touch with the Wattle Partners team. Mate, you're in Noosa, so are you up there for another week? Someone just got in the pool in the rain. It's raining, is it? Uh, Yeah, it's raining. That's Yeah, otherwise it probably would have (laughs) cancelled. Well, thanks for joining us, mate. It's always a pleasure. So um, next week we'll probably do it back in person here in Melbourne. Um, but yeah, until next week, just enjoy your time up in, up in Queensland, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.